Pastor Eric is uh, either on his way to Portland or there. Oh, good. He left me this. Uh, so he's uh, continuing his work uh, on his master's. Um, on his master's. And so uh, he has left uh, Pastor Adam and I uh, some really great passages. We get to do Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, I sometimes wonder if he didn't calculate a year ago when he was thinking about doing Genesis, he's going to go, now when am I going to be gone for uh, class? Oh, it's then. Okay, I'll, and he backdated it. But uh, now I am uh, I'm privileged to be before you this morning. I usually don't uh, preach on Sunday morning. Uh, but here we are. So if you'll turn to uh, Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. I'm going to read the passage, and then as we go through it, I'll put some stuff up on the screen. So, When the men got up to leave, they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with him to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great nation, a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare it, spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? I will not do it if I find 30 there. Now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for inspiring Moses to communicate this with us to us. For in this story, we learn of your righteousness. We learn of your, uh, your judgments. And we also learn of the effects that the righteous can have within a culture and a society. May we, as your people, as those who have been brought into a covenant relationship with you, may we intercede for those who stand outside that, knowing that we can come before you boldly 
as your friend and that you will answer. For this we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Eric began this section where we see the three men coming to uh, Abraham and Sarah who were living probably to, a little bit to the northeast of the cities on the plain of which uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were two. And they both exhibited uh, the classic Mideastern uh, hospitality as they welcomed them into their home and they fed them. Um, and it was during this time uh, that Pastor Eric talked about last week, during this time, uh, God confirmed his promise to Abraham and Sarah that before a year had passed that they uh, would have a son. So this story continues after the meal is completed. The dishes are done and the men get up and leave on uh, on continue their journey. So from the beginning of the story when the men appear to this time, it's probably about six hours. Uh, last week the men show up around in the heat of the day. Um, after they ate, we know that they uh, got to Sodom. Pastor Adam will be dealing with this next week uh, right around evening time. So let's say a six-hour period uh, had uh, had occurred. And so we find that even after uh, the meal, that Abraham continues to be a gracious host. And for us, um, hospitality is sort of an optional thing that we engage in, but is a very crucial, a very uh, telling uh, part of the Mideastern culture. If you were inhospitable, that said something about you. It said something about your commitment to God. So Abraham continues to be hospitable as he gets up and accompanies these men on their way. Unlike those who might say, honey, we better go to bed so these people can leave. Uh, Abraham continued to be hospitable to him. And right from the beginning, that's the only joke I'm going to tell the entire <laughs> sermon. So <laughs> I sort of front load them. <laughs> I should have just left that one out. But, but right from the beginning of this account, we are given a clue of what is to come as these two as these men look down upon Sodom. Remember in Genesis 13 when Abraham and Lot had to find different places to uh, pasture their flocks and their herds that Lot took the uh, the lush rich valley probably south of the Dead Sea down amongst these five cities. Lot took probably the better land as we're going to find out, the land doesn't remain better forever. And Abraham and Sarah were in the hills, probably to the northwest. So Abraham accompanies them on their way. And then the Lord asks the question, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? What had begun as a hospitable end to Abraham's care for his guest now takes a serious turn. As God offers to allow Abraham and to his righteous judgments. It's possible that God is pushing Abraham to come to grips with the nature of the one with whom Abraham was in a covenant relationship with. Abraham knew the promises that God had made to him, the promises of, of a nation, the promises of land and greatness and offspring. But even after 25 years of, of interacting with God, I'm not sure that Abraham knew the full extent of God's righteous anger, the degree of his abhorrence of evil and sin. Later in this section, Abraham confesses that will not the Lord, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? He had a glimpse, a glimmer of God's righteousness, 
but I don't know if at this juncture he fully grasps at God's complete and utter holiness and righteousness. So when God says, uh, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It's going to reveal to Abraham something new about God. But I think there's another couple of reasons that uh, God asked that question of Abraham. Abraham was God's friend. He is characterized in the book of James, uh, where James writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, that Abraham was God's friend. What a tremendous um, description of him. Abraham, and we find as we look through the, uh, the stories of Abraham, he never followed, he, he was never perfect. There were always instances where Abraham made terrible choices. And there were instances where Abraham, even when God promised again the son, that it says Abraham laughed, just like Sarah laughed. Abraham has his uh, foibles and his weaknesses and his uh, struggles. But he was a friend of God. He is called the friend of God. Let me ask you the question, are you God's friend? Jesus, as he, before he was crucified, interacts with his disciples and he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Are you fr- a friend of the triune God? Are you developing that relationship with him? Do you spend time with him? For that's how friendships are developed. I believe God asked Abraham the question, do you want me to hide this from you? And the, res- the response uh, even though it's Abraham doesn't say, of course not, I don't want you to hide this from me, but we know what's, he knows what's coming. One is because he was Abraham's friend. The second, and it's not in your notes here, but um, Abraham, I believe, and this is speculation, but I think I can defend it, um, Abraham had a relationship with uh, people in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 14, remember, he had delivered, he had been the... Uh, uh, the um, the force that went out and rescued Lot, but he also rescued other people from Sodom uh, when the, the kings had, the coalition had come down and taken them into captive. So I would bet that Abraham had acquaintances in Sodom. He may have even had friends down there. So God doesn't want to hide from him what's about to occur. And also Abraham's nephew Lot was living down there as well. And by virtue of that fact was about to be put in at tremendous risk. And there could be also be God wanted Abraham to be clear that what was about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities on the plain, was not just the result of a natural catastrophe. And then uh, of all the sections in this uh, passage, this next one is probably the most perplexing for me. Because God asked, do you want me to hide from you what I'm about to do? And before he has a, Abraham has the opportunity to answer the question, or before God even reveals what's going on, he says, he, he redeclares, he reaffirms the covenant, where he says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Why does God repeat the covenant here? And Genesis 12 was the initiation of the covenant where God says, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land that I'm telling you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. 
And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And God also promises for Abraham a land. And he establishes the boundaries. I believe within this context, uh, God reaffirms or re-declares um, the covenant here to expand upon some of the purposes for which the covenant was established. Understand I said the covenant was established for these purposes, not that the covenant was established because of these purposes. God's covenant with, a, with Abraham was unconditional. It was not conditioned upon any kind of response of Abraham. But the, co- the covenant brings with it covenantal obligations. Abraham was chosen so that he would teach his children and thus, and thus the nation to live a life of righteousness and, just, and just, justice. Judgment was about to fall on Sodom. And in the unconditional covenant God had made with Abraham is, that, is the fundamental principle that will preserve a society. Sodom did not embrace those fundamental principles and was therefore about to experience judgment. If a society will listen to those fundamental principles of righteousness and judgment, it will be preserved. And as as parents, we have the responsibility to teach our children those principles. Not that even teaching them and teaching them well always guarantees that they will follow it, For even God himself, the perfect father, had the perfect children in Adam and Eve, and they lived in a perfect environment, and they chose to turn their back on God. There are no guarantees of success, but that does not relieve us of the responsibility that we have to instruct our children in righteousness and justice. Abraham was to teach his children so that it would impact and influence the culture and society that was coming from them. So Abraham had covenant responsibilities to charge or command his household to live righteously. Righteousness is a life that is lived in conformity to the character of God. When confronted with a moral decision, and each one of us sitting in this room were confronted with decisions of morality, if not on a daily, on an hourly basis. When confronted with that situation, the moral response, the righteous response is the one that God would do. Granted, we will never have the knowledge that God possesses, but we have sufficient knowledge to keep the way of the Lord. Moral understanding is not rocket science. Knowing the right way to live is not beyond Abraham, his offspring, or us. But living it out oftentimes is exceedingly difficult because it asks us to live beyond ourselves. It asks us to live outside of the realm of maximizing our own personal pleasure. And in fact, at times, making the righteous and the moral choice will in fact minimize our pleasure. God, I think, is expanding the covenantal responsibilities that Abraham has as he hears, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to fulfill the promises I've made to you. And in response to that, because of the relationship that I have with you, you are to instruct your children in righteousness. And you are to instruct your children and your household in justice as well. Justice has a corporate connotation. Justice is the application of righteousness within a society and a culture. 
The community, the nation that will arise from Abraham's offspring is to be governed by that righteousness. The day-to-day outworking of the judicial system, the governmental system, and the commercial life of his descendants is to be guided by righteousness. The poor are not to be exploited or abused. The widow and the orphan are to be cared for. The alien are to be welcomed. Judgments are to be unbiased and fair. And there is to be equality. This is what Abraham, within the context of the covenant, is to instruct those that will arise from him so that a nation that is just and righteous will be born. Kyle and Dalish in their commentary on the book of Genesis said this, God had chosen him to be the father of the people of God in order that by instructing his descendants in the fear of God, he might lead them in the paths of righteousness so that they may become partakers of the promised salvation and not be overtaken by judgment. The destruction of Sodom and the surrounding cities was to be a permanent memorial of the punitive righteousness of God and to keep the faith of the ungodly constantly before the mind of Israel. And it's important for us to remember that the audience of this book, as Moses is writing it, he's writing it, he's not writing it to Abraham, he's writing it to a group of refugees that are currently traveling through the desert. And they are currently experiencing what? God's judgment. Because when they made the decision not to enter the, enter the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, God says, okay, you don't want to go where I've, I've, I've given you to go? Every person over the age of 20 is going to drop dead in the desert. And when they're all dead, I'll bring you into the promised land. They were currently experiencing God's righteous judgment because they had strayed from the path of righteousness and justice. They were to be a light to the nations around them as they established a society, a culture based upon God's principles. And they were to be ruled by God and his laws, not the whims of man. And from this explanation of God's, of Abraham's responsibilities and that he is to instruct his household and his children comes the example of a community where lawlessness and injustice had taken root. And it was about to harvest a harvest of judgment. And then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done if it is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And I'm going to reverse the order here where he says the sins, their sins were so grievous. This is not the first time we've been told about the community of Sodom or the community of Sodom and Gomorrah and the immorality of the people who live there. After Lot and Abraham separate and Lot chooses the plain where these cities are situated, in Genesis 13 it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And we are told there are two areas that their wickedness encompassed. And the first is homosexuality. Homosexuality is a capital offense in the Old Testament law. In Leviticus 20, verse 30, it says, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood is on their own heads. In in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says, It's one of the consequences of pushing God to the periphery of your life, where it says, Although they knew God, 
They neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And the Apostle Paul also says those who practice homosexuality are excluded from the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. But, and I want you to hear this very clearly, but homosexuality is not the ultimate or unforgivable sin. And those who practice it are not irredeemable. In Leviticus, if you read through Leviticus 20, guess what? It's not the only capital offense. There are others that are included in the section. In Romans 1, you read through that section, it is not the only consequence of excluding putting God in the periphery of your life. And in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 8 through 9, guess what? It is not the only practice that excludes one from the kingdom of God. And understand this, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only hope that those who are caught in the bondage of homosexuality have. And the only way we are ever, they are ever going to hear it is if we tell it to them. We, the church, I, I'm using that in a general term, to our shame, have relegated that community to, to hell because we believe they are irredeemable and refuse to have any contact with them. They are the lepers and the pariahs of the evangelical community. But if you read on in 1 Corinthians 6, guess what the Apostle Paul says? He goes, speaking of those who are homosexual offenders, idolaters, adulterers, the sexually immoral, he says, and that's what some of you were. His audience in Corinthians were made up of people who engaged in those kinds of behavior. That's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God. There is no one outside the pale of the touch of the gospel of God. And we ought to, as a people, as God's people, extend the offer of redemption They may reject it, but we still ought to extend it. But that's not the only sin of Sodom. The second sin of Sodom is total disregard for those in need. And this is found in Ezekiel 16, verse 49, where it says, Now this, the prophet says, was the sin of your sister Sodom. And we would expect this whole long litany of sexual immorality, but Ezekiel says this, She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. In that one phrase, the detestable, haughty, or did detestable things, I think that encompasses the sexual immorality that was rampant in Sodom. But look at the emphasis that Ezekiel placed, where Ezekiel places the emphasis. They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and did not help the poor 
and the needy. Evil and wickedness had become a societal norm within the city of Sodom. They ignored the needs of the poor and the needy. In their abundance, because they were overfed, they were unconcerned with those who had nothing. They were the original me society. And just the language in the text says it was not an isolated incident, but it had become systemic throughout their entire town or culture of those five towns within the city. God calls upon us as well to embrace the poor and the needy, to not be unconcerned for those who have needs. May we, as we enjoy our affluence, because we're a middle-class church, we, are, we enjoy affluence here. May we not be deaf to those who need. And then he goes on to say, whoops, let me go back here. It says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, there is an outcry, outcry for those, from those who are oppressed and abused within the city. This word outcry contains in its range of meaning. It's an utterance of horror. It's anxiety, alarm, distress, sorrow. And this outcry is not merely an isolated event. It's not just one person going, I'm being uncared for. But it came from a variety of people, and also possibly even from the host of heaven who observed Sodom's wickedness. God hears the cry of those who are oppressed. Because sin is not an isolated event. It is never, ever done in secret. God knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He sees more than just what we do. He sees what we think, what we might propose to do, what we fantasize about. All of those things are open to the eyes of our God. He might hear the outcry of the host of heaven where he goes, do you, God, do you see what Keith is thinking right now? God is never an, or sin is never an isolated event. First, it offends the righteousness of God. It violates his character and his nature. It did it in Sodom and Gomorrah. It does it in our life as well. When we choose... When we make a moral choice not to live righteously and justly, we offend God. There is an avenue of forgiveness in Christ, but the offense is still there. And secondly, there is always a consequence, whether for the one who commits sin and thus harms himself, or the victim who is violated by another. So this cry comes up before God of the wickedness of Sodom. And he says, I will go down and see what if what they have done is bad as the outcry that's reached me. And if not, I will know. This is not God sort of uh, going down and uh, his, that his knowledge is somehow limited. But God is going down uh, to verify that the outcry is accurate. This not, does not mean that his omniscience is in any way compromised. But he's going to make a judicial inquiry as to the accuracy, he's on a fact-finding mission. Moses uses anthropomorphic language to describe the utter thoroughness of God's judgments. They are based upon full and accurate information. 
And his information is full and accurate for us as well. So now, knowing the extent of Sodom's wickedness, Abraham begins to intercede for the righteous of the city. He doesn't argue that God should not judge evil, because God always judges evil. The question is, is who's going to, uh, who's going to suffer that judgment? It's one of two people. You're going to suffer it yourself, or Jesus is going to suffer in your place. That's the good news. We do not have to suffer the consequences, the judgments of God, because it pleased God to bruise Christ, to take his life, to pour upon him our punishment that we might have life. Because God will always punish wickedness and evil. Abraham argues from the basis of God's judgment, and he basically tells God, you can't wipe out the, the, the righteous with the wicked. You can't do that. As he remains standing before God, the passage says, because he's God's friend, he intercedes for the righteous within Sodom. You can't destroy the righteous because of the wicked. In this, uh, And I'm not going to read the whole, the whole section again, but Abraham makes the statement, will not the judge of all the world do what is right? You can't kill the righteous because of the wicked. And God's response is, you're right, I won't. But when Abraham addresses God as the judge of all the earth, in that very title is the answer to Abraham's question. God is the judge who is the very standard of righteousness. What he does is always in accordance to his righteous character and nature. Of course, God will not wipe out in this instance the righteous because of the wicked. And Abraham intercedes for the righteous. Note that Abraham does not argue that God ought to extend mercy upon the the, uh, inhabitants of Sodom. He argues from the basis of preservation of the righteous. Abraham is not asking God to overlook the sins of Sodom. And finally, out of this section, is never underestimate the preserving power of righteous people within a society to delay the wrath of God. Have you ever wondered why God has never judged the United States? We've abandoned our biblical and moral foundations. We're a culture that's possessed by greed and affluence. Immorality and all its diversity and perversity invades every corner of our society. The poor and the disadvantaged are marginalized. The old and the unborn are just sort of tossed aside as being inconvenient. Yet, God has yet to rain down burning sulfur on us. You ever ask, ever wonder why? I believe, based upon this passage, that in large part, God's judgment has not fallen upon us because of you. It is because of the presence of those who God has declared righteous and empowered to be salt and light that judgment has been delayed. The church, us, 
is the reason God is withholding judgment. And the church is God's agent for change in our culture. If we take seriously our call to share the good news of God's remedy, the cross of Christ, we continue to be preserving agents. I didn't come to faith in Christ until I was 19 years old. My life changed fairly radically and fairly abruptly. It doesn't always happen that way. But there were practices that I engaged in. There were things that I did that God changed me. And because of that, he has given me the privilege of sharing the possibility of change to the people I come in contact with. You want to be free? We have defined freedom within our culture as that we can make every choice that we want. But that freedom, the Bible tells us, leads to bondage. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, do you think they exercised their wickedness because it made them feel bad? They did it because they thought it was an expression of their freedom. But we find that they were in bondage and under judgment. You want to be free, know Jesus. Jesus set me free many years ago. I can't even calculate how many years ago it is right now. The good news of Jesus Christ is a preserving influence within our culture. We as recipients of that good news and responders to that good news are preserving within our culture. Never minimize the impact that you can have as a follower of Christ in your business, where you go to school, your circle of friends, your contacts. Never minimize the influence that you can have. And may we intercede for our friends and our nation and the world as Abraham did for Sodom. I want you to take away two things from this message this morning. The first is, and you ask yourself, you ask yourself this question, are you God's friend? Or is he sort of a distant relative? Do you make a, a, a point of engaging in conversation with him as you read his word, as you pray? Are you developing that friendship with God? And the second uh, thing I'd like you to take away from this this morning is that to whom, for whom are you interceding? I believe, and I, to tell you the truth, I don't understand this whole prayer gig. I, I mean, I don't. I wish I did. It's, the most, it's probably one of the, um, the issues that I struggle with time and time and time again. I don't understand it. Um, but that doesn't keep me from interceding for those that I love. For those that I know that are outside of a relationship with God, it doesn't keep me from doing that. Who are you interceding for? Who are you coming before your father, your friend, the throne of grace, and asking God to make a difference in your life? May we take seriously the privilege and responsibility that we have as we live righteously and just within our culture. Let's pray to God. Father, the privileges that we have of living as your children are empowered by your spirit as you work within us. May we not shirk our responsibility. May we work for righteousness and work for justice. And may our lives demonstrate that. And may we also be those who extend grace regardless of someone's sexual orientation. May the church be a place where grace can be found, that lives might be changed. 
Help us to love, Father, like you love. May we call sin, sin. But may we also know that change is possible. Work in our lives and our hearts to your honor and glory so that, Father, you would receive praise. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.